Lord God, thank you so much for these words to us um, that John wrote down many, many, many centuries ago. Thank you that they speak to us even today. Thank Thank you that your word is not a word that is far off, a word that is irrelevant, but thank you that it's a word that is living and active and that speaks to us today. So Lord, I pray that you would speak through me this evening, that you would give us all soft hearts to hear your word, hear your voice to us, and that you would um, help people to pass over or ignore anything I say that is wrong. And I pray that all this would build up the body here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in the very early stages of my faith, I think I could definitely be described as being tossed about by every wave and blown here and there by every, every wind of teaching, to use Paul's words. As the Spirit began the work of putting flesh on the bones of my new self, my mind was assailed by many questions. But the one that kept coming up, or the one that many of the questions pointed to, was this. How do I know that I'm really a Christian? So I'd like to be able to tell you that I've grown out of this question, but that simply isn't true. And while I've only known the Lord Jesus for just over two and a half years, I know many who have been faithful believers for years, even decades, who still gnaw over this question, especially in times of hardship. So one woman I spoke to, um, who remembers her conversion in 1953 with great joy, even today wrestles with that question sometimes. And an old chap who many of you here will know, um, he wisely said, I have found that I often waver between faith and unbelief, sometimes more, sometimes less, and increasing years don't necessarily produce more wisdom or conviction. So assurance of salvation is a really big issue. In Christian circles, we often throw around terms like assurance, salvation, damnation, free grace, and so on and so forth. But without a reminder of what these things actually mean, discussions about them can start to seem dry and like sort of theological. So let's just think for a minute what I mean by assurance of salvation. So it's a fundamental truth of of everything that there is one God who created all of us, but whom we have all greatly offended by living our lives in defiance of him. Because he is a perfect and just God, he cannot let this defiance go unpunished. And so he's set a day when he will come to judge the world. And those who have lived in defiance, which is all of us, remember, will die an eternal death, suffering punishment for our wrongdoing forever. This is what is meant by damnation. And it is a terrifying but undeniable truth of the Christian faith. But God, in his mercy, because he loves us, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to take the punishment for our sins, so that by trusting in him, by becoming Christians, Christians, We can stand blameless on that day of judgment. And we can be rescued from the punishment that we deserve. 
for eternal life spent with him. So being rescued from eternal punishment and for eternal life with God is what's meant by salvation. So those who have salvation are said to have been saved and therefore assurance is certainty that we are saved. So within the body of professing Christians, there are many answers to the question of whether or not we can have assurance and how much we can have it and so on. And one friend of mine who I'm genuinely convinced is, is a believer, but who's more in line with the sort of high Anglican tradition, he said this, two things that we can never be sure of are another's damnation and our own salvation. Interesting. And indeed, this, this view generally agrees with the Catholic teaching from which it derives, that we may know that we are in good stead with God at any one moment, but any time between now and death, we may find ourselves fallen out of that good stead because of the sins we've committed. And so when we are convicted of sin, and when we, feel, when we find ourselves in deep sorrow, we have no confidence that God, our holy God, loves us and has redeemed us And so every sin post-baptism brings with it the terror of damnation. Then there's people on the total other extreme of the spectrum who believe that because they they can point to a moment in their life when they sort of prayed a prayer of salvation, because they said sorry to God and invited Jesus into their lives, therefore they can rest happy in the confidence of the eternal bliss that awaits them. And they have this confidence regardless of any particular beliefs about who God is or any particular behaviour or attitudes they display. And the problem with this view is that it always ends up promoting terrible, immoral behaviour and wildly inaccurate teaching. So I've pointed out two sort of practical issues with these two views, but the real problem with them is that neither of them lines up with the view presented in the Bible. So, for those of you who were here five weeks ago, if you cast your minds back when I began this series, I said that there were two big intertwining ideas in 1 John. Fellowship and assurance. So, right off the bat, before we jump into the passage here tonight, I want to say that John's view, and therefore the view of Scripture, is that those who are saved can absolutely have assurance. Indeed, we read his primary intention... For the letter, in chapter 5, verse 13, you can turn there if you want. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So not only does John believe that we can have assurance, he also believes that he can give us assurance through his letter. So it's therefore appropriate to read much of the content of this letter as encouragements of assurance. And I think that's primarily how we should read the passage that we have before us tonight. So in answer to the question I asked at the start, how do we know we're Christians? I think that John gives two main responses, summarised by two sort of we-know-by statements in the passage. So the first is verse 14a, so chapter 3, verse 14a. He says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. So firstly, we know by the love that we have for one another, which dominates chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. The second verse 
which is something of a linking verse between the two sections, is verse 24b, which says, And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So secondly, we know by the spirit God gave us. These two points, of course, they're summaries, so I'll spend the rest of the um, talk fleshing out what they mean and what, yeah, what goes into them in more detail. Um, and finally, I'm not going to be able to say everything about assurance, obviously. I'm just trying to say what's here presented in the passage. So let's begin by thinking about the love we have for one another. So let's look at the first word of the passage we have before us tonight. So the first word of verse 11 is for. So really, it kind of means because. So really, we need to look at the previous statement to really understand what's being said. So I'll read from verse 10. So from verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So we know that those who do not love their brothers and sisters are not from God because Jesus' command from the very beginning was to love one another. John makes it very clear. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That is, they do not have eternal life. So John is pretty insistent that love, loving one another, is a central part of the gospel message. But how are we to love? What does this love for one another look like? So I think the first of three things um, to know about this love is that it's a love which isn't proud. So this is the first thing. Now this may sound obvious, but digging below the surface of what our society thinks of as love, we find that it's often full of pride actually. So John warns against pride because pride leads to hatred. What, what do I mean? Where am I, where am I getting this from? So, well, I think this is what John is getting at with his little anecdote about Cain. So let me briefly, so we have this little anecdote about Cain in front of us. So let me briefly summarize the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis 4. I'm sure many of you know, but I'm going to summarize it anyway. Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. So Cain was the elder, Abel was the younger. Both of them brought offerings to the Lord. Cain brought some fruit, Abel brought some meat. Genesis 4 tells us that the Lord looked on Abel's offering with favour, but not so with Cain's offering. Now we don't know exactly why he did this, but Hebrews 11 verse 4 tells us that it was by faith that Abel brought a better offering than Cain. So this gives us some clue that maybe, maybe Cain brought his offering without faith. Regardless of why God didn't accept Cain's offering, we know that Cain knew that Abel's offering was better than his. And this makes him very, very angry. So angry that despite God's tender warning and correction, he kills his brother. Instead of rejoicing in his brother's greater faith, he sees him as a threat to his own position, and so he takes him out of the picture. His pride leads to resentment, his resentment leads to hatred, and his hatred leads to murder. So this may sound like an extreme example of of pride and hatred that we'll have no trouble steering clear of, right? 
But I'll tell you how easy it is to be like Cain. So suppose we have a friend at church who is so faithful, just ridiculously faithful. Let's call him, let's call him Alan. Name begins with A. Alan is always encouraging people and trying his level best to live in obedience to God. He trusts God, especially when it's hard. He goes out of his way to be helpful at church. He sacrifices his time and his energy to serve on any team where there's a need. Right? There's hardly anyone in the church who hasn't benefited from his generosity, whether it's some money during monetary struggles or a meal, a hot meal in a busy season. And above all, he doesn't claim any glory for himself. He sees it all as God's work through him. So now suppose we, you know, you or I, suppose we're going through a rocky patch in our faith. And we just, we just haven't been as dedicated as, as we could have been. We've acted selfishly. We've too often put our needs first. And when we see Alan going humbly about his tasks, at first we feel ashamed. But rather than bringing us to repentance, our shame quickly turns to resentment. And our resentment sours and turns to hatred. And we think, oh man, Alan, what a pain. Always showing the rest of us up. Can't he just take a break? So without realising it, we've become like Cain. We've murdered our brother Alan in our heart. Because his actions were, were righteous and ours were evil. So if we find ourselves in this position, we should repent of it and bring it to God. And if appropriate, even ask our brother for forgiveness. This is the sort of love that we should have. A love that is humble, not proud. A love that delights in the greater blessings of others, rather than seeing them as threats. This is the sort of love that shows that we have passed from death to life. So secondly, the love which brings us assurance is a love which mirrors Jesus' love for us. So we're moving into the second paragraph now. So the first paragraph largely tells us what to avoid. This paragraph tells us what to imitate, the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Now, I think most of you would agree that Jesus did many loving things while he was on earth. Healing people's diseases, casting out demons, forgiving sins, and so on and so forth. But John, John does not see these charitable acts as the main way in which Jesus shows his love for us. For him, the ultimate example, the very definition of love, is that Jesus Christ went to suffer an agonizing death on the cross for our salvation. So knowing the depths of Jesus' love, that he gave his very life for our lives, this should have profound effects on the way we ought to love. We should give our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now that doesn't mean that unless we literally die for them, we failed. But it does mean that we should give up our time and energy and resources to, um, to increase their welfare. So I know for myself that time and energy are things I really struggle to give up for others. And when I do, it often comes with a certain degree of, of irritation or reluctance. But if I can't give a morsel of my time up, which is God's give, gift to me anyway... For someone else who, who really needs it. If I can't do that, how can I truly say that I've understood God's love for me in giving up his own son? 
We know that we've passed from life, uh, death to life because we love each other. But is that a love that says, yeah, I, you know, you're moving. I really hope you find someone to help you move. No, it's not. It's a love that says, well, yeah, I'm pushed for time. But put your boxes in my car and let's get going. That's the sort of love that we're talking about. So finally, we know that we have salvation by the love we have for one another, which is inseparable from our faith. So let me read from verse 19. So we're in the third paragraph now. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our, heart condemn, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So now, in the structure of the sermon, as you can see, we're still in the section on love for one another. But it seems like John here is giving us a totally new cause for assurance, right? So how does this link in? So I think the right place to start working this out is by rightly understanding these two verses, verses 19 and 20. So it's fair to say that our heart condemning us, this refers to having an inner conviction of sin. It's not talking about a long-range eternal condemnation. It's talking about a temporal condemnation, which can lead to repentance. So what does it mean then for God to be greater than our hearts? Well, when we feel that conviction of sin, if we belong to the truth, then we remember that God already knew about our sins. And indeed, he knows about all our sins, even the ones which haven't brought conviction yet. But in his mercy, which is greater than our own heart's mercy... Despite our sins, he accepted us and made us clean. So because we belong to the truth, because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, God himself no longer condemns us. This is at the very heart of our faith, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we have this assurance of God's forgiveness, we can set our hearts at rest Letting go of that inner, inner guilt of sin so that our hearts no longer condemn us. So then this moves us into verse 21. Now that we know God's forgiveness, our hearts don't condemn us. This is something that we experience one for, once for all at the moment of our conversion. But when the Spirit comes to dwell in us, uh, sorry, when the Spirit comes to dwell in us, but John's reminding us that this is also the pattern of everyday Christian life. Every day, we will experience conviction of sins. And every day we are reminded of God's forgiveness. But how does this fit in with the, the love we have for one another? Well, let me read from verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive from him everything, anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So the main thing here is that we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. The main idea is having confidence both in life and, and in general, but also in prayer. But it seems that there are two reasons given for this confidence. We have it firstly because our hearts don't condemn us. But secondly, we have it because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. But I take it that these two things are inseparable. When we remember God's forgiveness, we know that we are actually keeping his commands and living to please him. How wonderful. Outside of Christ, we can't please God. 
or keep his commands. It's, it's, it's impossible. But in Christ, redeemed by him and adopted into him, we are able to live in obedience to his will. And this actually pleases God. And what are his commands? Well, let's, let's look onwards. His, his, his commands are believing in Jesus and loving one another. Notice that he uses the singular. He says, this is his command. In the same way that knowing God's forgiveness and living in obedience to him are inseparable, so faith in Jesus and love for one another are inseparable. They're fundamentally one command. And and both of these truths, I think, derive from the inseparability of Jesus as Saviour and Jesus as Lord. So, the love that we have for one another, the love that brings assurance, is a love that comes part and parcel with our faith in the forgiving power of Jesus. This probably explains why it brings assurance. So, that's the first cause for assurance. Um, The love we have for one another with all it brings and all that brings it. John says that those who keep God's commands of faith and love can rest assured that God lives in them. But now we move with John into the next, and I think the underlying cause for assurance. Indeed, this cause is not merely a cause, but rather the giver of assurance. And it is the spirit God gave us. So the first thing to note about the spirit in relation to assurance is that he is not, he's not on par with our faith. Or our love. He sits above them as their originator. So the spirit is God living in us. Who trust, living in us who trust in Jesus. Enabling our faith and love. And bringing us conviction of sin. And assurance of grace. So whilst we may get assurance by looking at God's work in our lives. It's ultimately the spirit who actually gives us that assurance. So the second thing to note is that it is the spirit God gave us. That's at the end of chapter 3. The spirit God gave us. The spirit is a free gift of God to all who believe in the name of his son. He is not something we can force into our lives. So, John has just introduced the spirit for the first time in his whole letter as God living in us, as a bringer of assurance, and as God's gift to us. The natural question is, What is this spirit like? There are many people out there who are claiming to have have had spiritual experiences and therefore have authority on spiritual matters. And there are also many people out there who display love to the people around them. Do we just point to all these people and say, yep, that's God's spirit? Well, John sees the issue here. And so he tells us two important truths that help us recognize God's spirit. The first... In, in paragraph, the first paragraph of chapter 4 is that God's spirit acknowledges the incarnation. That is, that Jesus Christ, the divine son of God, came into the world as a real living man. So John's aware that since the beginning of the church, there have been false teachers spreading around, right? On the very day of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the Jewish leaders started a malicious rumour that Jesus hadn't actually risen from the dead, but that his disciples had stolen his body. But even within the church, there are many who claim to teach with authority, but who are actually spreading lies. John knows that there is a spiritual reality behind this, and he wants to warn us of it. So therefore, when John talks about spirits, um, I don't think he's primarily talking about sort of disembodied spirits talking through the air. 
I think he's talking about spirits who inhabit people and speak through the people they inhabit. And only those inhabited by the Spirit of God will speak the truth. So this first test that he gives us for discerning spirits is mainly concerned with discerning good teaching from false teaching. However, it can be used to test our own thoughts, of course. But the main thrust of this test is this. If a person who claims to have the Spirit of God does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in the flesh as a man, then they in fact have the spirit of the Antichrist. They are against Christ. The reverse of this test is also present in that first paragraph of chapter 4. If someone agrees that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, then they have the Spirit of God. Now, there's a lot of content wrapped up in this. First, the Spirit must acknowledge Jesus, who is presented in this letter as the eternal word and the divine son of God. Then, the Spirit must acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that is, God's anointed king, who rescued his people from death by his blood. And then, the Spirit must acknowledge that Jesus Christ, the eternal, divine, saving and ruling Son of God, came into the world as a man and lived on earth. So this is not all fleshed out here in this part of the letter, because John clearly has in view incarnation deniers primarily. But the truths of Jesus' divinity, kingship, eternal sonship and saving work are brought out at other points in the letter. So therefore, we shouldn't just trust someone because they say Jesus was a man. It, it, doesn't also imp- it also doesn't imply that people who rightly understand who Jesus is will necessarily be right about all matters of faith. But it reassures us that people like this have the Spirit of God and therefore they can be listened to and not treated as false prophets. So, many of us here tonight are believers. We've had the benefit of good teaching and we read the Bible regularly. I'm sure most of you would have no trouble agreeing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So what does this first paragraph here in chapter 4 have to say to us? Well, firstly, note the imperative in verse 1. Test the spirits. As those born of God, we have a duty to carefully consider all that we are taught. We should not just blindly accept any message we hear from the front or from prominent, figure, prominent Christian figures in public life or even from close Christian friends. But secondly, we may be in danger of forgetting the importance of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. Remember that the Spirit of God, this Spirit who acknowledges Jesus' incarnation, is in fact the Spirit that brings us assurance. But there can be no assurance if there's no salvation. There can be no salvation if there's no forgiveness of sins. There can be no forgiveness of sins if Jesus didn't die on the cross. And Jesus couldn't have died on the cross if he hadn't come in the flesh. So therefore, by reminding us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down to earth as a man, the Spirit can bring us salvation. But he can also bring us great comfort. Jesus who saved us and now rules from heaven, is not far off. He knows what it is to experience human limitation, frailty, anguish, temptation and suffering. He himself has personally been on the receiving end of 
scorn, rejection, pain, and an agonizing death. And yet, he has risen bodily from the dead, giving us a sure hope that if we trust in him, our pain will come to an end and our bodies will be made new. Therefore, in the darkest valleys of our lives, Jesus is there with us to say, I know. But he's also there with us to say, it will come to an end. No other spirit can bring us this comfort. Only the spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And finally, I'm right, I'm, I'm nearly there now. The, important, the second important truth about the spirit of God is that he acknowledges the apostles. So this is the last paragraph. So the apostles are those chosen by Jesus to speak his words to the church after he ascended to heaven. This is what John means when he says in verse 6, whoever is from God, whoever knows God, sorry, listens to us. Here, John is stating emphatically emphatically what Dan said a couple of weeks ago, which is that departure from the witness of the apostles is false teaching. It's no good to say, yeah, I believe the gospel, but Paul and John and all the rest, they can get lost. People who speak this way never even understood the gospel and have departed from the truth. Or, as John puts in chapter 4, verse 1, they have gone out into the world. So it's worth mentioning at this point that John's not giving himself free license to teach anything he wants. Um, We could go on about the remit of the apostles, but I'm not going to do that now. Talk to me afterwards if you want to talk about that. But let's just move on. So the Spirit of God acknowledges the apostles. And therefore, true believers also acknowledge the apostles. Finally, and as with everything else I've said this evening, how does this tie in with assurance? Well, the false prophets are described in verse 1 as having gone out into the world. This ties in with the fact that their spirit, the spirit of the Antichrist, is the one who is in the world. But John tells us in verse 4, once again, using that dear children address to remind us that this is something that should bring us comfort, he tells us that we have overcome them, that, we, that our victory over their false ideas and their false promises is already secure. And why is this? Well, it's because the Spirit of God, the one in us, is greater than the one who is in them, the Spirit of the Antichrist. It brings Psalm 110 to mind, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. On the cross, Jesus secured the ultimate victory over the powers of this world, over sin and death and the devil. Now God the Father has exalted him to his right hand and there he rules until all his enemies are finally crushed beneath his feet as he returns in glory. This is our great hope. So I'd like to finish with just a little quote from the guy who I mentioned right at the start. He said, We are inclined to forget how gracious and good the Lord is, how he understands and accommodates our weaknesses and our needs in his unmeasurable love. It's true, we are. But in his great mercy, he even accommodates our forgetfulness. So this week, let's remember that our God is a God who wants us to know 
that he loves us. And let's seek to see that through the love we have for one another and by the spirit he gave us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you loved us enough, loved us so much to send your son to die for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you laid down your life for us. Lord, I pray that our love for one another would mirror that love that you have for us. Thank you that you came in the flesh, Lord. Thank you that you experienced our pain. I pray that that would be a great comfort to us this week. Please, Lord, fill us with your spirit and teach us what it means that you love us and that we are to love each other. Amen.